Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Open it to us. Show us Christ. Pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Apostle Paul is ending his letter to the Corinthians at this point as we come to this chapter. And at the end, he writes these words in verse 21. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Look with me again at verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Anathema in Greek. We have that in English as anathema. Let him be under the curse of God. This is not just a, a curse of temporary measure. This is the eternal curse of God. Just as anyone believing or proclaiming a false gospel is under the curse of God, according to Galatians chapter 1. So here, anyone who has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. And then he says, our Lord come. It's talking there of the coming of Christ back again the second coming of Christ. How are you doing with your love for the Lord Jesus? If we don't love the Lord, we're under the curse of God. That's strong language indeed. But it goes to the very root of our understanding of how God works in the hearts of his people. I remember in my own life at age eight, maybe age nine, seeing my father reading the Bible. He was preparing a sermon. He was a preacher and he left the room and left the Bible open, and I went and read what he was reading. It was an old black King James version of the Bible, and as I read it, I made a mental decision as, as, I, as I was reading a number of passages that was on the page before me, I find no interest in this. Here's my father spending hours reading the Word, studying the Word, and I can take it or leave it. In fact, I would rather leave it. There was nothing that interested me. And I made a mental note in my mind, a mental decision, I think, in my heart that I'm not following my dad into ministry. There's no interest in me. I wanted to be a soccer player. That's where my heart was. And I had no love for the Lord. Something changed at the age of 14. And it's expressed very well in an old Keith Green song from the 70s. Some of you may remember this. It's called, You Put This Love in My Heart. You Put This Love in My Heart. Rather than myself mustering up what was not there, trying to do something, trying to have some affection for Christ, what is amazing is that under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he, as the divine surgeon, rips open the heart and takes out a heart of stone that has no beat whatsoever for God. No heartbeat for God. No life. That's what a stony heart is. And puts instead in its place a heart of flesh, to use the language of Ezekiel. 
He puts in us a heart that wants him, that wants the true God, the true Christ, and then believes the true gospel. And it's an enduring faith he puts on the inside of us so that as we're hearing the gospel call, the Holy Spirit superintends the word of God so that we're born again of incorruptible seed by the word of God. First Peter chapter 1 reveals. Praise the Lord. It's a miracle. Every Christian is a radical miracle. God put love in the heart for Christ that wasn't there before. And so it's right for Paul to write these words. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be uh, anathema. He's under the sway of the evil one and he is under the curse of God. Thankfully, God intervenes in the lives of his people to do what human activity could never muster up, and that is change the heart. If anyone does not love the Lord, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Strong, strong language. We must have love for the Lord, and it's God who puts that love on the inside of us. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's his activity. And we are to believe in the right Jesus and love the right Jesus because only he can save. In Philippians chapter 3, we have the prayer of, of Paul, or at least it's his wish at this point. In fact, it's his absolute desire. He made it clear that he counted everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything is lost. Now, he had a lot to lose in terms of academics. He would put that aside. In terms of his acceptance in the Jewish community, he was highly esteemed. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Philippians 3.6, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. But he went in on, on in verse 7 to say, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he had a lot in the gain column. If he had a white sheet and put a line down the middle and put gain on the left-hand side and loss on the other, he had loads of gains in terms of his heritage as a Jew. He went on to in verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, recount his gains that he thought he had. All of those would be on the gain side of the ledger. Let me just recount them. I myself, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Once he saw Christ, everything that he thought was gain now shifted from the right-hand side of the ledger to did I say right side? The left-hand side of the ledger to the right side. Everything was flipped. Everything that he thought was a gain was now a loss. And 
on the gain column, there was only one thing, and it was a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I want Christ. I want him. I want to know him. And everything else is meaningless. Everything else is not only not a gain, but is a loss. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. In other words, this was not just an academic understanding and a conclusion he came to academically in his head. He lived out the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. But he said this, he wrote this, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Rubbish. One translation has it as dung. It's a Greek word, word uh, skubalon, and it describes all religious activity in Paul's mind. He counts it as literally human excrement. If we translated the word the way it really reads, uh, it would be shocking. But that's what he thought of his achievements in the light of finding Christ and that he might gain Christ. And verse 9 teaches really the doctrine of justification by faith alone through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Read verse 9, Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now look at verse 10. That I might know him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That I might know him. He's an apostle. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If anyone would be deemed to be someone who knows him, it's Paul. And yet he says that I might know him. There's much, much, much more to be discovered in Christ. The riches of Christ are an eternal treasure that I might know him. So where do we find him? Where do we find him? Well, we find him where he said we would. I wonder if you can turn back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3, where we have the incident recorded of the Lord's call to the young boy, Samuel. It's an amazing chapter, and I'm simply going to read it and comment maybe on a couple of the verses because uh, these are pretty self-evident as to what is taking place here does not need too much in the way of commentary. But in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we read these words. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. There wasn't a prophetic element going on in the community at that moment, at that time. And then we read these words. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God has not, had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. 
Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Obviously what's going on here is God is calling Samuel. Yahweh is calling Samuel. And Samuel thinks it's Eli calling. So he runs to Eli and says, Here I am, you called me. But he, that's Eli, said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord, Yahweh, called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. That's significant, verse 7. Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. Now, he was very much in, engaged in religion. Couldn't be more, as a young boy, involved in religious activity, serving Eli. But he didn't know the Lord. Then it says, And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. That's significant. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. So now there's three incidents of the same thing happened. It's a repeated thing. God is calling. Samuel thinks it's Eli calling and goes to Eli and says, Here I am, for you called me. And then we have this word. End of verse 8. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will, will tingle. On that day I'll, I'll, I'll fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he didn't restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Israel, excuse me, the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. God was done with Eli and his house. Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, that's Eli, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's the north to the south of the country, all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Now look at verse 21, it's significant. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, 
for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, look at this, by the word of the Lord. He revealed himself by the word of the Lord. I would suggest to you that's where we find him. We find Christ. We find the Lord in the word of God. Not in some experience, not upon a hill, except that we're reading the Bible when we're upon the hill. It's not an experience so much as God revealing himself through the word. Through the word. That's the mechanism by which he reveals himself. He revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. And I believe that's how he reveals himself to us. We don't know God by our feelings. We don't know God by our experience. We know him by the word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. God is found in his word. Now, some people react to this in the realms I used to walk in in the charismatic uh, charismatic sector of the church. I've heard more than one person say, oh, just spending your time in the Bible. That, uh, That can make you a Pharisee. And they actually go to a scripture. I'd like us to turn there and... um, as is often the case, usually always the case, what happens in that sector of the church is a verse is taken out of its setting to make it say something that it never was intended to say. And what is said about this verse might shock you. Look at this, uh, John chapter 5, and uh, Jesus is uh, bearing witness to the Pharisees and says these words in verse 39. This is John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Let me read this from the Legacy Standard Bible. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness about me. Very similar words. And the way I've heard this described is really to Put a wet blanket on the study of the scriptures. If you do it too much, this is what I heard. If you study the scriptures too much, you might become like a Pharisee. Wow. Study the scriptures too much? Yeah, you search the scriptures. You think that in them you have eternal life. It's not found there. Well, there's an element of truth, and that's what deception is. It builds its house on a foundation of Some truth, but not the truth. No one normally, in any normal circumstance, will just eat a hot dog if they know it's got poison inside it. But it looks like a hot dog, smells like a hot dog, but there is poison inside that has been inserted and the poison can kill. But no one just will go to the store and say, can I have a little box of poison, please? Uh, no, we, we, it, it's, it would be an insane act to do that. So deception has some truth in it. And the scriptures are not where we find eternal life. But let me explain what the passage actually means. Jesus was looking people right in the eye and said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. 
And the message is this. The scriptures bear witness about me. We need to just keep on reading. That's where often deception falls to the wind when you just keep reading your Bible, keep reading the verse. And look at verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's it. Searching the scriptures wasn't the problem. The problem was searching the scriptures, finding Jesus there and refusing to come to him. Jesus looked them in the face and said, your study of the scriptures brings you face to face with me. That's what he's saying. But you reject me. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. And where do they come to him? Where should they come to him? In the very scriptures they're studying. Amen. Part of our love for the Lord Jesus, in fact, the bulk of it, I don't know if we can say 100%, I think it's clearly up there. <laughs> I don't want to put a percentage on it. But our love for the Lord is seen by our love for his word. I don't love God more than I love his word. What are Pharisees? Pharisees, as one man put it, are legalistic knowledge junkies. I, I wrote that down and I thought, that, that's, that's exactly what they are. They know a lot. They know a lot. They know a lot. But they don't know Christ. And their knowledge of God in the scriptures isn't the problem their knowledge of God in the scriptures brings them to Christ. Christ can be seen all through the scriptures. That's what he did on the road to Emmaus. He outlined to two disciples himself in all the scriptures. I'd have loved to be there for that Bible study if there was a translation into English. <laughs> what a journey that would have been. So studying the scriptures is not the problem. It's studying the scriptures and not finding Christ there and coming to him there. Where? In the scriptures. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Knowledge is not to be avoided. There's no Bible warning. Hey, don't know too much. <laughs> you might end up like a Pharisee. No, but that's kind of how I was raised in the charismatic sector of the church. Just studying your Bible? Huh. Well, it shouldn't be just studying the Bible, but studying the Bible with a view to finding Christ in the Bible. That's what John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40 is teaching. Study too much and you might become a Pharisee. No, studying but not willing to embrace Christ in the Scriptures when you study that's the issue. It's an adventure in missing the point. That's what it would amount to. Michael Reeves, in a recent book that has been published, wrote this about evangelical Pharisees. In fact, uh, that's the name of the book. Quote, Where evangelicals fall for Scripture as an end in itself, eerie resemblances to the Pharisees start to fester. Instead of being treasured as a revealing mirror, James 1, 22 to 25, the Bible is used as a weapon for beating others or as a platform on which to parade our own brilliance. Arrogance mushrooms as blind to its exposing light, we become master 
masters of its words. Where scripture is an end in itself, preaching becomes a matter of making our people experts in scripture. It may even make them more scrupulously moral, but it creates scribes, not disciples. It creates a people aware of their own biblical knowledge, but unaware of the depth of their problem. Puffed up and essentially self-reliant, they are not humbled, not dependent, not staggered at the mercy of God. They are not made worshippers and lovers of Christ. End of quote. I say, O Lord, have mercy on my soul. Have mercy on all of us that we be not Pharisees, just accumulating knowledge. But knowledge isn't the problem, but it has a tendency to puff up, the Bible says. Knowledge puffs up. But we must have right knowledge. We're called upon to love the Lord our God with all our mind, as well as our heart and soul and all of our exertion, all our strength. But the mind... How do we love him with our mind? By studying the scriptures, reading the scriptures, understanding Christ in the scriptures. I look back over my life now and um, I'm still in my 50s. So how old I am in comparison to others, I don't know. But uh, I'm certainly older than I was in my 20s. And in my 20s, as I went to seminary in England, many started off in the study of the scriptures at seminary. And within a few years either at college itself, at seminary itself, or into the ministry, one year, two year, three years, a number of people left the ministry. So many leave the ministry. And because at root level, there are great hardships in ministry. I don't want to underestimate that. But at root level, the question needs to be asked, where is the love for the Lord Jesus? And if we love him, we will feed the sheep. We'll go on feeding in spite of the difficulties. Arthur Pink, in his exposition of the Gospel of John, wrote these words, it is only those who truly love Christ that are fitted to minister to his flock. The work is so laborious, the appreciation is often so small, the response so discouraging, the criticism so harsh, the attacks of Satan so fierce, that only the love of Christ, his for us and ours for him, can constrain to such work. Hirelings, H-I-R-E-L-I-N-G-S, hirelings will feed the goats, but only those who love Christ can feed his sheep. End of quote. Now, that that is a true statement. There are difficulties, there's all the things that go into ministry that could put someone out of the ministry. But love for Christ will keep you at your post. And through the years, I am so thankful that it wasn't me that put the love for Christ in my heart. That's where I started, if you remember, the song of Keith Green. You put this love in my heart. Samuel Rutherford once wrote these words. I would seek no more to make me happy forevermore, but a thorough and clear sight of the beauty of Jesus my Lord. Let my eyes enjoy his fairness and stare him forever in the face, and I have all 
that can be wished. End of quote. Yeah, when we see him, we've got all we want. We've got all we want. So examine the scriptures and find Christ there and you'll not be a Pharisee. You'll be a lover after Christ. The scriptures are sufficient. The Reformation was all about Rome having an understanding that some things were necessary, but the Bible revealing the fact that those things are necessary and sufficient. For instance, Rome believed then and now that grace was necessary. The Reformers, looking at the Scriptures, understood grace is not only necessary to be saved, but it's sufficient. Similarly with the Word of God. Many believe in the necessity of the Bible in their lives, but the Reformers in Sola Scriptura understood the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Our own London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 reads this way. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. End of quote. Think about that. Everything we need is expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture and nothing at any time is to be added, whether it be new revelation of the Spirit or the traditions of men. Martin Luther, man mainly used of God in the Protestant Reformation, once said these words, I've made a covenant with God that he sends me neither visions, dreams, or even angels. I am well satisfied with the gift of the Holy Scriptures, which give me abundant instruction and all that I need to know both for this life and for that which is to come. End of quote. John Calvin, who followed Luther in the next generation in Switzerland, once said this, without the word, W-O-R-D, without the word, there is nothing left but darkness. I want to encourage you today to love the Lord Jesus. And the way to do it is to open up your Bibles and pray, Lord, help me find you here. And it's a prayer God delights to answer. In Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 1, page 396, Beaky and Smalley, the authors, wrote these words. The doctrine of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures declares that everything necessary for saving faith and spiritual life is taught in the Bible. There is no warrant or need for the church to base its doctrine or directives on anything else, be it church tradition, the opinions of men, or the wisdom of this world. End of quote. Amen. As we open up our Bibles, our prayer should be, Show me the Lord Jesus. As we prepare to hear the word preached, let us pray, 
show us Christ. Christ in the Word. I believe you'll find him when you seek him there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this short time in the Word. May you cause us to love you. May we love the Lord Jesus, the right Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the one who is eternally God and yet became man and is now man for us. Truly God, truly man, one person with two natures, truly God, truly man. And may we grow in our knowledge of him. May we grow in our love for him because to know him is to love him. And we will know him for eternity. There is never an end to the knowledge of Christ. There never will be a day on any given day, like a Friday in heaven, if there are such things, where we say, you know what? That's the end of the course on Christ. That's the end of the study of Christ, and I've now come to know all there is about him. No, no, because he's eternal, he's everlasting, he's infinite. He is the infinite treasure. And for eternity, we will learn more and more and more and more about him. But our prayer now is that I may know him. I know him now, but tomorrow I'll know him more as he unveils himself to me in his word. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. May he reveal himself to us in this same way and manner. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.